for today. I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to have Steve Bender with us. Steve is a, uh, a missionary from, uh, from years back that, w- that ministered in Korea and has also spent time in administration in the Baptist Bible Fellowship International offices based in Springfield, Missouri. I'm thankful for BBF and thankful for what they do for the fellowship that they have. There's a national meeting that's taking place in Somerset, and that's what brought Steve our way today. Um, but we're thankful to have him, and he's going to come and just share what God has laid upon his heart. I want us to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what God uh, has for us this morning. So would you give a warm Graceway welcome to Steve Bender this morning as he comes? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come. I feel like I'm at home, Brother Derek, uh, because uh, you made me feel that way. I've enjoyed being in the men's Bible class and then meeting many of you already this morning, but also another reason, because I attend Graceway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri, and so uh, someone said, hey, you're at home? I said, no, I'm at home, but I'm not at home this morning, so uh, I'm here with you to, to share with you this morning about what God is doing. I appreciate the opportunity. God uh, saved me when I was seven years old. I was called to preach. I went to Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in San Dimas, California. And uh, during my time there, God laid on my heart a burden uh, to go to South Korea as a missionary. So when my wife and I graduated from college, uh, we went to South Korea, spent 15 years in South Korea. That's why I have a southern accent, uh, although you don't recognize it this morning. Uh, But actually, I grew up in Texas, uh, and so God left us in South Korea for 15 years. We thought we were just really getting started. We knew the language. We had had a part in starting five churches, a Bible camp, and a a correspondence course that was going out to over 15,000 people throughout the country. But then God had a different plan, and he moved us to Arkansas. I was assistant pastor at Temple Baptist Church in Springdale, Arkansas for two years, and then God delivered me from Arkansas. I say that, and my wife says, why do you say that? And I said, well, it's just a joke because we had a great time in Arkansas. I loved the people, loved the ministry, but we were asked to come and be a part of the administration of the Baptist Bible Fellowship International Missions Office in Springfield, Missouri. So 19 years ago, we moved to Springfield, and I became uh, one of the associate mission directors working with missionary care Uh, for the over 750 missionaries that we have worldwide in 84 different countries. And we appreciate the support that you send to those missionaries, both in your prayers and your finances, and then also the other missionaries that you support. Uh, Because as your pastor said, it's not limited. We have an opportunity to use several different venues to reach people around the world, and that's what it's all about, is it not? You know, the Great Commission was given to the church. Bible says to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, correct? He told us to reach them, to preach to them, to lead them to Christ, to disciple them and into mature believers and begin churches and repeat that process over and over. And that doesn't mean outside of the United States of America. It means to be doing it right here at home. 
It means for us as a church family to be reaching people that we can reach, going to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our, our classmates in school, telling them the gospel of Christ, inviting them to church, seeing them become believers and mature, and also sending out missionaries to those that we can't reach. So with that in mind, I, I'm here for... Uh, I just happened to be in the area. Your pastor was gracious enough to share his pulpit with me this morning, and and uh, that's a scary thing because I'm a total stranger to him. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> who knows what I'm going to do? In fact, he said, "Just go up and do whatever you need to." So, how many of y'all believe in the hereafter this morning? Let me just get this out of the way. You believe in the hereafter? Good, because I'm here after your money. Uh, no, not really. I'm just kidding. I I don't need. I don't want your money. What I want is your heart. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants our heart. And so with that said, uh, anybody know what this is? Help me out. What is this? Starbucks. Unfortunately, it's empty. In fact, when I went through the line this morning, the drive-thru, I asked the lady, I said, I have an unusual request. Would you uh, be willing to give me a cup? She said, what do you want in it? I said, I don't want anything. I just want a cup. Because this is a recognized symbol, correct? Starbucks coffee, one of the largest, if not the largest coffee chain in the entire world. But do you know that in the humble beginnings, it started with one small store out in Seattle, Washington. It started there in the market and began to grow. And in 2008, Howard Schultz, who was the owner of Starbucks, had gone into retirement. In 2008, he began to look at the company that he loved and that he had built. And even though they had 7,100 stores across the United States and internationally, he began to notice something. He said, you know what? He said, we've lost the essence of what we started out to do. So Howard Schultz came out of retirement. He said this, on Tuesday evening, February the 26th, 2008, he said, we're going to close every Starbucks store worldwide. So on that night, he closed 7,100 stores for three and a half hours because he said this, we need to energize and retrain 135,000 baristas or employees in the art of making espresso. 7,100 stores, 135,000 people got paid for three and a half hours to be retrained because they lost, in his words, the essence of making a good cup of coffee. They refocused on what they were doing. For those three and a half hours, they retrained. He said, and I quote, pouring espresso is an act, one that requires the barista to care about the quality of the beverage. Do you think about it when you go to Starbucks or wherever you go for coffee, that the person making that cup actually cares about that cup of coffee? He said they've lost the heart. If he or she does not care about the product and produces an inferior espresso, then Starbucks has lost the essence of what we set out to do 40 years ago. 
I realize it's a lofty mission for a cup of coffee, but it is what customers want. They retrained 135,000 baristas. They reopened those 7,100 stores. And now, a little over 10 years later, there are 28,000 Starbucks stores worldwide. They are the largest corporate coffee chain in the world. I thought it was interesting. I used this illustration when I preached in Seoul, Korea just last January. And I did a little research and Seoul, Korea has over 400 Starbucks stores in that city alone. Isn't that something? You say, well, all of that's kind of interesting, but what does it have to do with what you're here for? I think it has to do with this. Sometimes in life and in ministry, we get busy with what we're doing, pouring a cup of coffee, that we forget what the mission really is. We get so busy with our Bible studies and our fellowships and our activities and all of the other things of life and just living life as a family that we forget what's important. It doesn't, it, it, it usually takes some kind of a startling, oftentimes tragedy to bring us back on focus. I'm happy this morning. You know why? Because I have a two and a half year old grandson named Jates. Jates was diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, a kidney disease. And he spent three days in ICU in Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. He spent 10 days total in the hospital, but he was released last night. During those 10 days, do you not think that we were focused as a family on his health and his life? But until that time, while things were going status quo, we just rode along. And our prayer life wasn't as intent for him specifically as it was these past 10 days. I say that to say this. God called us, commissioned us, told us, ordered us, ever how you want to put it, but it was an order to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So I could ask you this morning, who have you gone to lately? Now that would be a little personal, so I won't do that, okay? But let me help you to remember something. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to John chapter 4. Probably a very familiar passage of Scripture for most of us, and you'll see it when we go there. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples had been in Judea. And beginning in verse number 3 of John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples were leaving. He left Judea with his disciples and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Now, let me help you understand that just a moment in case you don't. Samaria was a country, an area in, in, the, in the region that the Jews did not like the Samaritan people. 
They, in fact, avoided Samaria every opportunity they could. They didn't like the Samaritan people. They didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to have interaction with them. They didn't want to go through their part of the country. So they circumvented Samaria oftentimes. But on this particular journey, it says he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well, or Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knew the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman then saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Drop down to verse number 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him something to eat? And Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, 
Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that spoke to men of old to pen these exact words that you have for us today. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would lead someone here who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, who has never drank of that living water that you offer, that today they might come and find salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those of us that know you would be stirred to go to reach those that we should and that we can with the gospel of Christ. Instruct us now and lead us to do your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me help you to understand what we just read. I, I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, <clears throat> but Jesus and his disciples left Judea. They were going into Galilee. They traveled through Samaria. They get outside of the city of Sychar. There's a well known as Jacob's Well, and Jesus sat down to rest because he was tired. The disciples went into the city to buy meat. There was a woman from Samaria that came out to the well to draw water. She wasn't a woman of really good repute. She came out at a time when the other ladies wouldn't be there. She gets to the well. She meets a man. Jesus says to her, give me to drink. And she said, why, why do you ask me to give you a drink? I, I, you're a Jew and you don't talk to us. And I'm a woman in spite of that. And you don't talk with women and you don't talk with Samaritans. Why are you asking me this? And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me and I'd give you living water. And you know what she said? She said, but sir, this well is deep and you don't even have a bucket to let down in to get the water. How are you going to get this water and give it to me? And Jesus said, if you knew who it was that was asking, you'd ask of me and I'd give you this living water. And she said, give me this water that I'll never thirst again. And the discourse goes on and he says, go and call your husband and tell him to come here. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you've said right. You, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've lived with five men and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she said, sir, I know that the Messiah is going to come one day. I know the Savior is going to come one day, and he's going to tell us all things that ever I did. And Jesus said, that's who I am. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that can help you. And the woman, the disciples came back from the city with food, and the woman left her water pot at, in the at the well, and she goes back to the city, and you know what? She says, hey, 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 come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. This has got to be the Christ. And so there was a crowd of people that were coming out to meet this man that she was talking about, and, but the, the Bible says, in the meanwhile, the disciples were there with Jesus, and they said, here, Master, eat. And Jesus said, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. 
And the disciples were, hey, wait a minute. Now, we traveled together. He stayed here. We went to the city to buy food. Where did he get this food from? Who gave it to him? And Jesus said, hey, guys, listen. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then he looks at the disciples because I'm thinking they're looking kind of dumbfounded and they don't understand it. And he says, okay, wait a minute. Don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a physical harvest. He says, don't you say that when a farmer goes out into the field in the spring and he breaks the ground and he plows it and he prepares the rows and he plants the seed and he covers it and the sun comes and the rain comes and the seed germinates and sprouts forth. Don't you say that process takes four months from the beginning to the end? And the disciples from this background, they understand what he's saying. They said, well, yeah. And then he says to them, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. What's he talking about? You remember the woman that he met, the Samaritan woman that went back to the city and said, hey, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. This has got to be the Christ. And the Bible says if you'll read the rest of the chapter, not now, later on, if you'll read it, you'll find out that there was a crowd of people that were coming with her. And Jesus says to the disciples, listen, guys, you're not getting it. You don't understand. There's a crowd. Look, the fields are white already unto the harvest. Lift up your eyes and see it. But the disciples, you know what they were? They had traveled with Jesus. They literally walked physically with Jesus Christ himself. So you would think they would understand what the mission was, don't you? You would think that they were fully engaged, but they had gotten so wrapped up in the things of the world. They had gotten so wrapped up in lunch, they forgot what the mission was. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, guys, you don't get it. Our mission is to tell people who I am, to tell people what I'm here for, why I came, that my life might be spilled out, that they might have eternal life. That's the mission, guys. But you're so wrapped up in groceries that you forgot You're so wrapped up in your health crises. You're so wrapped up in your financial issues. You're so wrapped up in your relationships. You're so wrapped up in possessions that you forgot that people like this lady that just left here need me. They need to know who I am and need to know why I came. In essence, he said, wake up, lift up your eyes and look and see it. And don't just see it, but get involved. Well, and it was 8.46 a.m. Tuesday. September the 11th, 2001. The first of two commercial airliners had just crashed into one of the Twin Towers in New York City. A little while later, 
Another plane would slam into the second tower and into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one would crash in a field in Pennsylvania. As news stories began to filter in, America and much of the world began to watch in horror as the most horrific attack on the mainland of the United States of America took place right before our very eyes via television. Across the country, world markets stopped trading, airport terminals, every form of transportation public-wise was shut down. The White House, the Pentagon, every government building in Washington, D.C. was closed and evacuated. Why? Because the most powerful country in the world had been hit. We were wounded. And we were in absolute shock as to what was taking place. Almost immediately, President Bush was notified. And not long afterwards, he was loaded on board Air Force One. It was put into the heavens, and a command post was set up. He began to communicate with the leaders of our country. They began to plan an educated response to ensure that something like this would never, ever happen again. To bring justice to those responsible for the attack and to embark upon a seemingly impossible attempt to rescue those that might still be alive in the rubble that would become known as Ground Zero in New York City. I remember that morning, I sat in my office just 18 years ago this week. I sat in my office and my wife called me on my phone and she said, Steve, have you seen what's happening? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you need to turn on a television. You need to log on to your computer. You need to do something because America is being attacked. I said, what? I went upstairs into our missions apartment on the second floor of the missions building in Springfield, Missouri. I turned on a television and I began to watch what was taking place and we saw images replayed this week on the anniversary and many of you remember it so vividly in your own minds and details and memories. We saw what was taking place and I sat there that morning and I was glued to the television set and I was watching those events and I had to remind myself, Pastor, this is not TV. This is not, this is not a movie. This is reality. This is happening right now. It's not some made-up Hollywood show. And I watched what took place. And I remembered I was glued to the set. And I began to watch. And people all across America began to, to say, what can I do? How can I help? I want to do something. I, I want to be involved. And I remember it came started coming across the bottom of our television set in Springfield, Missouri, a red banner. And it said this, America in crisis, America in crisis, America in crisis, flashing back and forth. Did anybody remember seeing something like that? America in crisis, yeah. And I sat there and I thought about that. America's in crisis and what's taking place. And then my mind flashed back 
to the city of Sychar and Jacob's well and Jesus Christ with his disciples. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, listen, you're not paying attention. You don't get it. You don't understand. You're so wrapped up in the cares of your own personal lives that you forgot that people need to know who I am and the fields are white unto harvest. What are you going to do about it? That's what he was telling them. And I think if we would have had multimedia in Jesus' day, it would have said something like this. Our world is in crisis. Our world is in crisis. Who will you reach? Who's the one you'll touch? Who's the person that you'll go to? How will you support missionaries to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? And I began to think about what took place just after September the 11th, 2001. And let me just give you some thoughts this morning, uh, some some of the results that took place after September the 11th that I believe ought to affect us as Christians this morning. After September the 11th, 2001, people began to respond and said, what can I do? How can I help? I want to be involved. And I watched and I read news stories about people as far away as as Oregon and Washington and California on the west coast of the United States say, I'm not a firefighter, I'm not a policeman, I'm not a medical personnel, but what can I do? And some of them traveled from all the way across the United States to New York City, and they said, if I could just hand out a bottle of water to those that are working, if I could hand them a towel to wipe the filth off of their uh, faces and bodies, if I could just do something, and people began to respond, and they donated money, and people went to the Red Cross, and they donated blood, and so much that the American Red Cross said, stop. We've got more than we can process. Wait until we begin to find survivors and we'll call on you. And the attitude was, what can I do? Let me give you some of the actions that followed September the 11th. First of all, it clarified and brought into focus our purpose. You know what our purpose was? The leaders of our country said there's been a tragedy. They notified our president. Our president began to communicate with the other leaders. They said, we've got to find out a way to to minister, to reach those that that have been affected. We've got to find those responsible and stop that. We've got to make sure that nothing else happens, but we've got to rescue those that might still be alive. That's our purpose. It clarified right away. Everything else can stop. All of the other meetings that were planned, guys, shut them down. This takes precedence. It clarified and brought into focus our purpose. Secondly, it produced a unity. I'm 63 years old. Never in my lifetime... Have I seen the United States of America as unified as we were in the days immediately following September the 11th, 2001? I remember watching that same television set. I remember seeing the leaders of our country, our president and vice president and house and representatives and members of Congress stand together on the Capitol steps, linked their arms, and you know what they sang? God bless America. And they said, we're unified. Nobody's going to take us down. You can try, but you'll not take down America. We'll stand unified together. And you know what? It didn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat or Independent or black or white or brown or yellow or whatever 
physical thing in this world that divides us. They said, we are unified together. Not so today. Thirdly, a crisis in America produced an urgency. You know what they said? I remember watching. As soon as they figured out what took place, when that first plane struck, they had no idea. They thought maybe it was a plane that just lost control. They didn't understand. And then others began to crash, and reports came in, and they figured it out. You know what they said? We've got to rescue people. We've got to get them out of the building. When that first plane hit about the 82nd floor of the World Trade Tower, the people below began to rush to the exits. The people in the second tower began to rush out. But you know what they told them when they got to the bottom? Don't worry about it. This tower's safe. Everything's under control. You can return to your workspace. I read a report where a man went back to his office on the 81st floor. But I also saw images of that first tower where people were running down 80 flights of stairs to get to the bottom, to get to safety. But on the other side of the staircase, there were firefighters and policemen, emergency medical personnel that were running up 80 flights of stairs to rescue people. When the building began to become unstable, everyone was evacuated out. But as soon as the rubble settled, they turned right around and went right back. And they searched into the noonday and into the afternoon. And it began to get dark. And they brought in huge searchlights. And they searched. And they brought in dogs. And they said, we've got to find survivors. And they searched through the night and the next day and the next day. You know why? Because they said, it's urgent. Every moment we wait, the window of opportunity to find survivors grows smaller and smaller and smaller. Until soon, all we're going to do is recover bodies. They said, it's urgent. We don't have time to get a committee together to study it. We've just got to work together to do it. The last thing America did was this. It became a defining moment. I purposely stated to you this morning on September the 11th, 2001, I could have just as easily said on 9-1-1 and almost everyone in this room their mind would have gone back to that same time in history. I could have said on September 11, and our minds would have gone back to 2001. It became a defining moment. But could I tell you something? There's alive today a generation of children that don't know September the 11th, 2001, like many of us. You know why? Because they weren't born yet. I look in this auditorium and I see these young people. They weren't alive on that day. Oh, they know it happened. They know what took place. They saw the documentaries and 
the newsreels that just played this week. They saw it all on Facebook, but it doesn't mean to them what it means to us. I say that <clears throat> because December the 7th, 1941, doesn't mean to me what it might mean to some of you. I wasn't alive. I know the attack on Pearl Harbor took place and many people lost their lives, but it didn't affect me the same way. Now let's bring this all around. What does this have to do with the woman of Samaria that went back to the city and said, hey guys, <clears throat> come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. This has got to be the Christ. And they followed her. And the disciples, I said, here, Master, we got some sandwiches. We got some food. And Jesus said, guys, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Look at the fields. They're white to harvest. They need to know who I am. And you're just worried about groceries. I believe September the 11th, 2001 should affect us the same way spiritually when we get the need. I believe it ought to <clears throat> cause us to clarify and bring into focus our purpose, church. Our purpose is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Our purpose is to reach our friends. Our purpose Grandparents, is to reach our grandchildren. Our purpose is to tell every creature alive that Jesus Christ came and gave us life that we might have eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. It ought to clarify and bring into focus our purpose. But sometimes we get so sidetracked we forget what that is. Our purpose is to reach people and everything else is secondary. It ought to cause us to unify together and say, you know what? The pastor can't do it by himself. The music pastor, the youth pastor, others, they just can't do it all by themselves just because we pay them a salary to dedicate their time to, to lead us spiritually. <clears throat> It's all of our jobs. But we have a responsibility to reach the people we can go. Think about this. Jesus and his disciples left Judea. <clears throat> they went into Galilee. They get there to Jacob's well. Jesus stays there. The disciples go into Samaria to buy food. There comes a woman of Samaria that goes to the well. I imagine there was only one path, one road. The Jews don't like the Samaritans. They don't like women. And here they go. I wonder if that Samaritan woman didn't step off of the path out of the way and let the disciples go. Because after all, 
They were on their way to buy lunch. They were busy. They were focused. And I wonder how she felt. It's all conjecture. It's not in the word of God, but it's very possible. And she goes to the well. And here is another Jew. She says, oh, man. Then he says to her, give me the drink. Why do you ask me to give you a drink? You're a Jew and you don't like me and I'm a woman. But in his compassion, he said, if you only knew who I was. Thank God that he had his son Jesus there. Way too many times we're like the disciples. We're focused on other stuff. So we unify together. We say, what can I do? How can I be involved? Oh, I can come to church and I can sit in my Sunday school class and I can give God's tithe. I can bring that back to the storehouse. But I can also be involved in missions. I can also mark extra above the tithes and above other extra offerings I can give to missions on a consistent basis that helps missionaries that feed children and and reach them with the gospel of Christ and doing so through Jerry Abbott and Manna and other organizations and other missionaries that are going and giving their lives to live on the mission field to reach people that nobody wants to reach you can help support them but it takes all of us doing something So we unify together. And then we realize it's urgent. It's time. It's time now. Because every moment we wait, people die and go into eternity. We can have a hundred excuses as to why we won't get involved. We can have a hundred excuses to God as to why we won't surrender our lives. We have about 750 missionaries through the Baptist Bible Fellowship. They're sent from local churches just like yours. We used to have almost 1,000. But people have gotten older and retired We have a missionary in Japan. He's been there 65 years. He's 94 years old. Buried two wives. Still going strong. I could tell you many others that are in their 80s and 90s. But we don't have very many new missionaries. And I don't believe it's because God quit calling. I believe it's because people quit listening and quit surrendering and quit challenging people to surrender. Because I believe the commission is still the same. I don't believe Jesus ever changed his mind and said, guys, don't worry about going. I've got a better plan. It's not going to happen. 
He's still waiting on you. And he's waiting on me. And we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would put forth laborers into his harvest. And we need to surrender. We need to unify together because it's urgent. The last thing crisis in America did was this. It became a defining moment. Worldwide, when September the 11th, 2001 is spoken, people's memories turn back. It became that moment in time. You know what I've prayed for since the very first email with your pastor? I've prayed. And I said, God, thank you for the opportunity to go to Graceway Baptist Church. But God, I don't want to be separated from my family for no reason. God, I don't want to go and just preach in that church for no reason. God, I want you to do something. And you know what? God does do something. God does speak to people that are sitting on the fence, that haven't made that commitment to receive him as their personal savior, to, for, to, to confess their sins and ask for his forgiveness. God is speaking to someone like that perhaps even this morning. And I said, God, could you use the message to perhaps through your Holy Spirit draw them to you that they might believe in you this morning? God, could you use the message maybe to speak to a young couple, a young family, a, a young person to say, God, here's my life. I know you as my Savior, but God, here's my life. You could use me. Like those in America that said, what can I do? How can I help? I want to be involved. That's what God needs today. Young boys and girls and men and women and families that will say, what can I do? Who's the one that I can reach? How can I tell somebody about Jesus Christ?